we would just like to take a moment to warn listeners that this episode will contain content that may be confronting to hear. This episode will contain mentions of rape and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. My name is Jean Carruthers. My pronouns are she and her. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge that I am on Turrbal and Yuggera land, and I would like to acknowledge the First Nations people of this land and pay respects to elders past and present and emerging leaders. As a a disclaimer, I would like listeners to know that this episode will be discussing drug use and the death of a young person due to systemic harm. If these are sensitive topics for you, please choose your own discretion as to whether you continue listening. Now, I'm here today with our most recent and most amazing crew member, Sia, who will be joining me in the discussion about the Part A episode with Brooke and Chen Lee, talking about creative practice in the drug and alcohol space. How are you, Sia? I'm great, Jean. Thank you for asking. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. It's hot outside, though. It is. I went up that hill and almost died. (laughs) (laughs) Students listening, they're going to (laughs) relate. Absolutely. So Calvin Crave Campus has a massive hill at the end of the street where we do our recordings. And yeah, it's definitely a talking point for sure. So Sia, I'm wondering if you would like to tell the listeners a little bit about you and how you came to be part of this particular discussion. Yeah, sure, no problems. So, as you know, my name is Sia. I'm at the very back end of a dual degree in human services and justice. Yay! I'm very excited. I came into this space purely because I'm very interested in this space, a student and an emerging practitioner, as well as my own lived experiences with my own situation, as well as with family and some friends. So it's just a point of interest overall, really, and especially when you're looking at it from a policy perspective there's Mm -hmm. a lot of ground there that needs to be covered a lot of balance that needs to be achieved and I've recently just gone oh yeah this is definitely a space which I can definitely look into in my future practice. Yeah and that's been a real interest in your education hasn't it Sia social policy? Yeah it is like um, I started out in creative industries and human services so it was one of those situations of oh cool I'm a creative writing student Policy writing is really interesting. Creative writing is interesting. But then I didn't realise that there was a whole other dual degree with justice involved Mm -hmm. and I could actually focus on policy and governance as a major and I just sort of went, 
by Creative Industries, Hello Politics, and here I am. <laughs> and you're actually, this placement is the last thing you need to do for your degree, so. Yeah, that, that's it. And then from here, I hopefully get an offer for my master's in social work so I can actually continue on into that social work space and really focusing hard in social policy so I can really stick it to the man, so to speak. How wonderful. And I know that your hours are nearly finished, so yeah. that's super, super exciting. I think I've only got 30 hours left so that'll be finished by next mid next week so that's really exciting and oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> the reality of it yeah I'm gonna need a wine after this <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's have a conversation so where do you think we should start with this discussion what were some of the things that stood out to you in relation to the episode with Chen Lee and Brooke one of the big standouts was actually policy. Obviously, I'm going to always fall back on policy, but um, it's mostly that harm reduction policy and the differences between harm reduction versus harm minimization. And they're sort of interchangeable with each other, but Mm -hmm. also harm reduction is very, very different to minimization where reduction is seeking to reduce harm caused by substance use. And it's providing education and knowledge around the substances people might be taking or even around alcohol that they might be drinking, um, whereas minimization is about really reducing that risk and those harms and sort of that abstinence policy oh, type okay. of a thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, whereas harm reduction is all about self-determination, choice, autonomy um, and peer-to-peer support, that type of mm. thing. And I remember that being a really big sticking point for Brooke in her Mm. practice in relation to she espouses a harm reduction approach rather than a harm minimization approach and a lot of practitioners in that space are doing that so they're looking at the ways that you can reduce the harm without people Mm. having to be abstinent and being able to recognize for themselves what their particular boundaries are and the ways that they use drugs and alcohol and the ways that it can have a role in their life without having to exclude themselves from being able to um, consume those things that we do socially Mm. all the time, you know. The other thing I wanted to point out is that I remember Brooke having a conversation with us when, when we did that recording And she was saying how a festival that they were working at, Mm. they did some really big banners for them and made these amazing banners for where their sites were going to be. But they were all harm minimisation ones. And she apologetically said, you know, I can't use those because it's very much against her espoused values in her practice to do that. It's kind of, um, I guess, in that when you look at it, because I'm very big for espousing harm reduction as well, especially in a festival space, because I'm a festival goer, I like going to music festivals. I like seeing people having fun. And honestly, if you're telling someone how to have their fun, it's kind of like policing fun. And that's not the Mm. way to go. And we're free to make our own choices. But if there's education and knowledge around Mm. that, so you're giving them information and it's making encouraging informed decision making. So it leads to that, oh, so I know what's going into this now. I know what I'm putting into my body, but it's my choice. And I love that. And I have education around that. I know what I'm doing. And that comes to the 
policies around pill testing, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, Queensland, uh, what they, as Brooke pointed out, is, is the second state to bring in pill testing as for mm. policy. Which is exciting for us yeah. because Queensland's usually one of the last people. It, it's great. Queensland's things. suddenly gone, oh, we're, we're not backwards now. We're going to leave that to New South Wales to keep to continue that banner. Um, no judgment no to judgment. people in New South Wales. No judgment, New South Wales. Yeah. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I found an article. So what it, it basically outlines that there was a need for drug policy reform. And with pill testing, that's part of that reform. And in some instances, there was an article that I read where as part of the pill testing, they're actually giving information booklets out about the substances that they're mm-hmm. using or they can get these pills tested so they know exactly what they're putting into their bodies, which I love that. That's really good because in some cases you could have a pill that could be laced with something really, really harmful and the person has a right to know that someone could have put something in there that's dangerous and it could lead to something very, very horrific. And I've seen it myself in some festival situations where people have taken things and it has led to really horrific consequences. And I've actually been in that that situation where I've actually Mm -hmm. gone in and just leapt into the support to try and help the person just so that they're safe and so that I know in my mind that they're going to be okay. And I've sat there, sat with them and just to make sure that they're all right. And there was one instance I read as well on that. They actually give a drug called, um, starts with an N, I can't remember the full name of it, but it reduces the harms of opioid overdose Mm. which I found that really interesting and I I support that as well because you're giving an option there and it's going to help someone in the end which I really like that idea is you're supporting you're not telling don't do this it's not okay you say hey look here's some information here's something that's going to help have a bottle of water and off they go they're going to go off and Mm. enjoy the festival and that gives people the opportunity to sort of think about how much they will consume as well. So they yeah. might say, I might take half of what I was anticipating taking because of that extra knowledge. Yeah. Mm. Um, like I, just sharing, I ac- took a half of a tab of LSD in my younger years mm-hmm. and um, ended up being chased by a unicorn with an eye patch. <laughs> that was a fun situation. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and if I had known what I was doing, might not have even taken the half. Fun, but also... Scary. It's scary, yeah, because that ended up being a very bad trip. But I was also drinking at the same time, so I was doing a lot of things. And I think if I had been armed with the knowledge, it could have been even more fun, but in a way that I would have been a little bit safer with myself and with the group of people that I was with. And I am very grateful for my group of friends that I had at the time Mm -hmm. because they made sure that I was okay and I was safe anyway. And they still give me hell for my little unicorn business. It's great. That unicorn is evil. (laughs) And I think that's really important as well. Like you've touched on a really important part of that in relation to the ways that our supports are. Sometimes it can be, particularly with women, sometimes there can be a lot of stigma and judgment if somebody has drunk a bit too much or like according to their capacity and their body's ability to I guess hold that volume of alcohol or if they have taken something and it hasn't been tested and it has led to a lot of discomfort and dysregulation then certainly 
the importance of people around you Mm. to be able to support you in that place. And sometimes it can be that people are isolated because, oh, hang on a minute, we're just going to stay away from that person because they are not doing what the social norms say that we're meant to do. And I wonder if sort of the reasons why Brooke does what she does is because that happens often, you know. And so having the support at festivals that her and her team provide is really beneficial when somebody has got no one. And even just being at a festival, Mm. you can lose your friend group, as in someone goes over here and you go over here and then it takes a while for you to catch up again. For example, one festival that I used to frequent before they got rid of it was the Soundwave Festival. And I would go with a big group of friends, Mm. but usually by the end of the entire festival, you have been completely separated from I used to always wander off. And that was also, we'd have our phones and we'd be like, oh, cool, we'll just send text messages out. But I'm telling you this, and probably if our listeners have been to festivals, text messages sometimes don't get sent out. And because for, for some reason, there's like a like a black spot yeah. in the festival. So there's not really a connection for reception, which is so frustrating. Mm-hmm. And you literally sit there thinking, OK, cool. Do I have to send smoke signals out to people just to try and coordinate yeah. how to find each other? And ironically, we would end up saying, hey, cool, we'll just fight, go find ourselves at the, the drinking tent or the beer tent or mm. whatever. And that was usually where I could be found, where a couple of others could be found. And I think with like what Brooks done with her organisation and her program, it's amazing because you've, they've got these chill-out spaces. And that would be a really good meeting point to say, hey, meet us at the chill-out space yeah. If, if you whatever, and that's a sort of like a, a little meeting point. And it's also, I really like those chilled spaces because it provides that safety net for people as awesome, just some support for them if they're feeling overwhelmed or they just yeah. can't deal. It's this little space just for them to chill out and just continue on their little party. They're partying, having fun, but they're relaxed at the same time. And it's, yeah, just one of those things. I really like that idea. Didn't have them when I was back in my day. No, that's right. And I know, like, my... 20-year-old son Mm. went to a festival recently and it was after we had had the recording with Brooke and I had a conversation with him in relation to, you know, when you're there, just know that there are people around and I'm hoping that there was because I don't know that there was at that particular festival. However, I did say to him, so just look out for it just in case you do get in a place where you do feel like you are not safe and you're not comfortable with what's going on or you need help because one of your other friends are in a situation that Mm. they didn't want to be in, for example, just know that they're there. And so just that, putting it on their radar, that you don't have to do this on your own if things don't go to plan, Mm. you know. I felt good about having that conversation. It could be a false sense of security on my part, but... At the same time, I really think having those conversations with our young people rather than them going to festivals and us saying, I don't want to know what they're doing, you know. I think it's a more healthy kind of support Mm. system to be able to have those conversations because people are going to do what they're going to do. And if we can have education that supports Mm. them to do those things safely, I think it's really valuable. Yeah, I 100% agree. My niece, she's turning 18 in July. Yeah. And she's going to her first music festival, I think, next month. Yeah. 
I just don't know. She did mention what it was, and I was like, okay, cool, cool. And then I went, hang on, hang on, hang on, hold on, hold on. And then I had to, and I went into the mode of, okay, we're going to go run through some safety procedures mm. just so you are safe. And then she just like, oh, did you want to come with me? I'm like, no, I don't need to feel that old. <laughs> <laughs> but I ran through the safety procedure, and I'm confident that she's going to be okay. And I told her, I says, make sure you give me your friends contact details and their parents contact details yeah. just so I know there's all these awareness around it. and I've given her information sheets yeah. as well around this because I'm not stupid I know she's underage still but some of her friends are 18 and I was like hmm okay I'm putting a lot of trust and I also got a lot of trust in her and I'm like I'm not going to be bothered if she does or doesn't just so long as she's safe about it yeah and I guess safety is on a continuum oh of- yeah um, we also don't want to scare yes. our young people into thinking they can't do things and they can't yeah. go to places that are social because of the fears of these yeah. things. I think there's a lot of fear-mongering around oh, drug yeah. and alcohol and it can be problematic in mm. the sense that it stops people from living, I suppose. Yeah, 100%. Like, I was scare-mongered when I was in my teens and... One of the big valuable lessons I learned came from one of my older sisters. Mm. And they said, always carry a bottle with you that you can put a top on, just a cap on. Yeah. And I've always done that when I've gone out now, yes. just to avoid the, the, the possibility of having my drink spiked. Yeah. And I've been spiked once. Yes. And that was purely Gosh. by a fluke. And, um, and I was lucky I was safe. I had friends with me. Um, I was okay. Um, but it was one, one of those lessons, just a little safety what lesson. What do you mean by it was by fluke? I decided to leave the cap off my drink. I didn't have the the cap on and I just and I left it. I left it on yep. its own unattended. And you should be able to yeah. do that, you know. And you should be able to do that and something bad not Yeah, happen. and that was mm. and in hindsight I said no, I shouldn't have to apologize for my own actions. Yes. Because someone else has chosen to do this. It's amusing, I guess. Not in a funny ha ha, but a oh my god, that's cringe sort of a way that women or people in particular just people in general have to be so mindful because of the choices of other other people have made and we should be able to trust that our our drinks or things aren't going to be tampered with yeah that's right especially and to not blame yourself yeah especially if we're in a a clubbing situation or even in a festival situation yeah oh that would have been awful all right what a conversation already so let's have a look now. Did you want to speak a little bit more about that policy connection to what we're talking about? Because I know that in the drug and alcohol space, mm. policy has become very punitive in relation to young people, but it yes. looks like there's change happening that might be recognising that this harm reduction approach has something to offer. Yeah. So what did you find? So I found there's a drug strategy from 2022 to 2027 in Queensland and all that it outlines that it identifies that a one-size-fits-all approach is not effective. So mm-hmm. what's good for the goose isn't necessarily good for the gander. You've got to have a balanced approach and a harm minimization strategy is not as effective as what they had thought. While current policy is sort of still in that minimization focus, it's now starting to shift to a reduction focus. At its core, it's a health policy and it identifies areas that contribute to and inform substance use across sectors such as housing, health, employment, corrections, Mm -hmm. policing, education, as well as child safety, which I found that really interesting how it's becoming cross-sectoral. So it's not just 
one little area, they've identified it's across across sectors. They've also identified that those engaging with the criminal justice system should be informed from the health sector. So rather Mm. than that adversarial punitive approach, people working within the health sector, so social workers, psychologists, people in that space can actually sit down and have conversations with them without judging them or anything Mm. like that. So it's really about reducing that stigma towards drugs and alcohol um, and looking at the ways that we can support safety. I I don't like using the word safety because mm. I think it's one of those shimmerers. Do we have safety in places where systemic harm happens? But for us to be able to be recognising the ways that we systemically harm people is really important to the ways that we can stop doing that. I yeah, suppose. and that's exactly right. And one of the big mm. key takeaways from policy is that it's a whole of government and a whole of community approach. And again, it's in, it's engaging but in a participatory way that's actually going to be bring people on board. So it's not just um, a bunch of men in suits yep. just saying, hey, this is policy, this is what we're doing. It's the whole of government. So it's both sides as well and then the whole community. And when we look at community, People might be thinking, oh, it's just like your local areas. No, I look at the country, our nation mm-hmm. as a whole as one big massive community and because there's all these little voices in there. Mm-hmm. And I look at unconscious and conscious biases towards drug use and, yes. and alcohol use. And changing those biases or even challenge, well, not so much changing, challenging the biases. In ourselves go, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, as well as in ourselves can go a long way because... With those biases, you're contributing to a system that's perpetrating harm on two people. And it's like, okay, cool. You don't really have the right to police choice. And someone's made a choice. It's their life. It's not your life. You don't have an opinion. If someone is struggling, make sure you're there to support them, but don't tell them what what to to do. Yeah, and that's one, of, and that's something I've learned just in my studies alone. Like we're there not to tell them what to do, we're mm-hmm. there to provide support. And if someone all they want to do is sit down and talk and shoot the breeze, whatever, cool. I'll sit down and do that. I'm more than happy to do that. <laughs> I do like the positioning of it being focused on health and well-being and not on nation. I think that's the shift it seems to be happening, which is great. Mm. We've still got a long way to go. But I feel like there is a role in critical reflection being part of that process. And when we talk about critical reflection or being reflexive, Mm. critical reflection is reflecting on the ways that society perpetuates harm. Our reflexivity is the ways that we might have assumptions within ourselves that could create harm Mm. if there are assumptions around criminalising drugs and alcohol or people that use drugs and alcohol. So shifting this, I think there's a real role in all of those stakeholders being engaged in some form of critical reflection. Don't know how that can happen, but I hope that I know in some spaces Mm. it definitely would be. And certainly in Brooke's space and just hearing Brooke talk about the ways she is reflexive in Mm -mm. the practice that she does. And I really like the way Brooke sort of talked about the ways that her practice, like she shares the evolution of how her program 
go and then reflects on that and recognises the ways that there could be improvements made because of the gaps. And so she was talking about how there are times when all of herself and her staff have felt really burnt out by the ways that the the practice was running and how do we combat that Mm. and the ways that there might be gaps in the ways that practice was happening like... Brooke was saying that she would bring people to these safe spaces, but just in sort of not far away were the police sort of surveilling in relation to Mm. that and not having a pill testing service to complement what they were doing in that space was problematic. And so changes happened over time Mm. with the reflection that Brooke had actually intentionally done and I think that's amazing practice and I really commend Brooke on Mm -mm. the thoughtfulness of the way that she practices in the field and the amazing creativity that she brings to that. That's what I love about it too is bringing that creativity for example like an art space creating a little art station for them at a festival or just in general. But not just creating it as a service provision doing it with them and that was really great cool. like I had a placement where I would do that as well and it was so much fun and you get so many interesting and fun stories just sitting down and, and practicing this with them and really engaging and they feel like they're part of something they're part of a community and they just really start opening up and you're seeing oh wow this is amazing and you feel so happy just to be a part of that growth and mm-hmm. that journey with them which that's a big takeaway. It's, it's and what amazing. were some of the things that came out of that? Well, one of the guys that I was working with, he was hilarious. Um, he came in, he'd been drinking a bit, mm-hmm. which no, we didn't care. And then he decided to steal a bread basket. Like, <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> just walked out with the whole bread basket. And I still sit back going, what just happened? Yeah. And then not even half an hour later, there he is going down this hill, sitting in the bread basket. <laughs> and he was on some massive journey. But I think he thought he was a pirate king or something. I don't know. I can't remember. But it was it was funny. Then he yeah. came in and we sat down and did some art and yeah. all that. And it was just so much fun. It was what well, that experience is a positive experience for me. And I just I loved it. And I still see him around the area mm. as well. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? So if you had have gone into sort of more of a punitive approach in relation mm. to the stealing of a bread bar and things like that, that connection might not have been able no, to No, I don't think it would have. Mm. Like, I look at it, the bread's free. I check myself, like, well, did he actually steal or did he just take something that's free? And that's how I look at it. If I had have gone from that real managerial, organisational, you can't do that, I'm going to, you know, police the hell out of that I don't think there would have been a connection and I imagine in the alcohol and drug use spaces really important that there are not those punitive ideas around I mean certainly you want to have conversations with people in relation to what their dreams are for life and what Mm -hmm. what they want to get out of it if that if those conversations can be had and how they might be able to get there for Mm. themselves however it's also a space that needs a lot of flexibility and a lot of understanding Mm -hmm. and a lot of we refer to in social work and human services the trauma-informed approach and so looking at the ways that I think Brooke 
really creates that trauma-informed space where it's a space for comfort and it's looking at the ways that creating comfort in the space using uh, different things like having soft lighting, lots of creative materials, Mm. having a soft place place to land, working collaboratively with people, supporting empowerment. Yeah things like that. So self-determination would be part of that probably more from an anti-oppressive perspective. Yeah, 100%. And that's something I plan to take through with my practice is that anti-oppressive self-determination autonomy. Mm. That sort of a practice is so important in this space, especially when you're working with like a wide variety of people. Yeah, And you could be working with someone who's never had the value of choice given to them before and so when they have that choice given back that pa- that power is given back to them it's sort of that they've taken charge they're in control and they're the ones leading their life we're not the ones doing it they're yeah. the ones and it's really lovely to see them come out of that space and they're healing in that wow we're allowed to make choices. We're allowed to do this. I can do this. And it's and okay. It's and I'm not going to get in trouble for having an opinion. It's my right to be able to do that. Yeah. And yeah. I think within the AOD space, creating that safe environment that's free of judgment, free of stigma, that is so important because society in general, I've noticed, is very conservative in that people are going to have very strong opinions about that space. Yeah. They're going to be very punitive in the way they handle it. Whereas if I sit down having a conversation with someone and they're like, hey, so I've just done such and such a substance, I'm not going to say you shouldn't be doing that. I'm just going to be like, okay, cool, are you safe? And if they say, yeah, I'm safe, I'm like, well, that's okay then. That's your choice. I don't mind. That's I don't it. really care. I've been there. I've done that. And there's also the such a thing with someone could be struggling really bad and they don't have, say, access to mainstream um, methods of treating like say you can't just go to a doctor anymore and get a prescription because there's bulk billing and then doctors are booked out and if you're dealing with something that you need that support if you've got a coping strategy there already that's okay too that is their choice and access is so important to me and if they don't have access to something but they have access to something else yeah then yeah I'm going to go with that. And I have noticed there have been studies as well, like, for example, some people are medicating with marijuana. Studies have actually shown marijuana does help with some situations like anxiety, depression. It just sort of, There's something about it that just helps. Mm-hmm. And if that's helping them, then that's okay. Chronic pain, again, there's studies with marijuana helping manage chronic pain. And people talk about microdosing with um, psychedelics and things like that as well. I want to go back to the anti-oppressive first. And then I want to share probably some of my experience because what you were touching on there in relation to the different perspectives and Mm. the different reasons why people might have assumptions around drug and alcohol is probably a really important conversation to have. With the anti-oppressive, I just wanted to give a little bit more information about anti-oppressive practice and what that espouses. And so it's looking at the ways that we recognise a social and political analysis alongside the ways that we fostered self-determination. So it's recognising that people come from different backgrounds 
um, different ways that they are marginalised within those backgrounds. So we've got the intersectionality of categories of oppression where people, according to their class, race, gender, sexuality, ability, age and so on, might not have the same privileges as other people who might have more power in those spaces. And so you can have white privilege. You can have gender privilege if you're male. You can have privilege according to being cisgendered, for example. You could be privileged because of your able-bodiedness and things like that. But this can be on a categorisation of an intersectionality. So you might be a white male but also in a low socioeconomic position, you also might be gay. And that might change the ways that people Mm. actually see you and recognise you, you know? In the ways that um, in the AOD space, Mm. it's the criminalisation of people who are um, taking drugs and using alcohol in ways that it's not seen as the social norms. And Mm. so part of that intersectionality of oppression might be that those aspects need to be taken into consideration in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and intergenerational trauma, for example. Yeah, I look at that as also it's providing a safe cultural space, cultural diversity, cultural sensitivity, cultural safety, that sort of the mindset, especially when you look at the criminalisation within AOD and the overpopulation of our First Nations peoples within our criminal justice system, it's eye-opening. When you see, for example, just some of the reasons why there could be an incarceration, and a lot of it, sometimes it is comes down to the AOD space, and it's because it's been criminalised in such a way and it is creating harms when a lot of the considerations around our First Nations, they're not considering the intergenerational trauma that has been passed down the systemic racism that's inherent within the system itself and it's just perpetrating and creating further harms which is not going to do anything it's just going to create a worse problem yeah and the ways that people might use alcohol and drugs to cope with that stigmatization with that with that oppression Mm. Uh, the other thing about that is our position of power that we hold as practitioners and the assumptions that we might have when we're working with someone Mm. If you are working in the AOD space, you probably have either had a lived experience or have an, a really yeah. good understanding or social analysis in relation to yeah. that. However, you might not be in the AOD space mm. and you will also be exposed to people who have been struggling with drug and alcohol concerns in relation to that. And so you need to be really mindful of the assumptions that you might make. It's unfortunate that we do work in silos sometimes and AOD is out here on its own. And so it's like, well, I'm not in that space, so I don't need to educate myself. Yes, we do. Because like any other area of practice, We Mm. need to be able to demonstrate that we have a social analysis or a critical analysis of the ways that that might show up. I think we had that conversation last week about the hierarchy of practice spaces and how AOD is always at the bottom of the ladder when, especially if you're talking about it in a situation of, oh, it comes last when it should 
probably come up around the top. Psychiatry yeah. and the biomedical model yeah. tends to come first. Mental health, and not to say that these areas of practice aren't important. Yeah. It's that why is there a hierarchy? Yeah, and you know? it's sort of all of these... Mental health, yeah. trauma, AOD. Yeah, and all these spaces, they kind of work in with each other. Like if you're living with a mental health condition, for example, I live with um, chronic depression and anxiety. Mm. I've used substances mm, to, to cope that. with that. And so you're sort of sitting in that space of, well, that's where it sort of all backdoors in. And you sit there going, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense Mm -hmm. when mental health and AOD, they're cross-sectional or intersectional with each other. Then you've got the psychiatry field coming into that and then you look at how social work feeds into that and there's that hierarchy between psychology, psychiatry and social work. Social work is that support space. So complex, isn't it? So my experience of that, and I have to say that this is sensitive for me, so Mm -hmm. my voice might croak a little bit, but Mm -hmm. a family member of mine who I'm very close with has struggled with drug use for a very long time and it has been really tough for them and for me and for the rest of our family. Mm -hmm. And I've had to really educate myself in relation to that because some of the assumptions I have had in the past without critically reflecting on that have not been helpful. And so that process of education and recognising and shifting out of those, because I don't drink alcohol very much, Mm. haven't been someone that's mm. been a social drug user. Yeah. So I I am sort of coming from a place where I don't recognise the experiences that are helpful in those spaces. And, yeah. and for some people, they are, if it's for an escape, if it's for a realisation yeah. of something, if it's for socialisation mm. and confidence to do that, if it's just for having fun. Yeah. you know and so that hasn't been a big part of my own experience yeah. and probably because of the ways that I have felt a sense of suffering watching the suffering of this family member it's been really really difficult yeah. and it's been to the point where that particular family member has gotten to the stage where they have been hospitalized mm-hmm. a number of times yeah. due to these struggles that aren't necessarily about drug use they're about other things that are happening in their life but they become part Mm. of that substance use to cope with the things that that person is experiencing whether that's internally or externally you know and what has really sort of created so much suffering for me was the systemic harm and the ways that the system doesn't support people who are using drugs and struggling with Mm. using drugs and alcohol in the same ways that it supports other people with other forms of mental health or physical health and well-being concerns. My family member went to hospital after a um, suicide attempt and was held for 48 hours and was provided information to go to a particular service or rehabilitation, but then was told that there were delays in that being able to be used. The outreach service would kind of ring Mm. to make sure that he was 
it's still alive. And so it's really problematic in the ways that we don't hold people in that space or we don't sort of transition them to the supports that are available to them very well. I know it's a minimum of a six-week wait to be able to get into some form of rehabilitation. If that is the place that you want to go, Mm -hmm. the transition to other services that are provided can be problematic in relation to having to have money for medical assessment and things like that. So it's a tricky space and I think a lot of people... Mm. And families are sort of suffering because it's not seen as something that is as important as other areas because of the criminalisations and the stigma that is around it. So it's really tricky. Firstly, I'm so sorry you've been through that and I'm glad that your family member has such an amazing support there. I guess from the sense of I share an experience like that as well Mm -hmm. with two family members, so I have an empathy and an understanding there. It's challenging, but it's also maddening too when you see that the supports that are in place on the system side of it Mm -hmm. is just so frustrating because they say that there's an importance for it, but then they're not delivering that support there's because of stigma and judgment as we've spoken quite a bit about the criminalization yes within that space it's absolutely maddening mm. with with some of my own experiences and just see, seeing through the media the, the state the hospital system is in at the moment it's absolutely shocking when you see that the services just aren't being provided and there's just so many things wrong within the system and the systems in place, I guess, continually blame the individual, but they're not taking stock or accountability for the system that's actually contributed yeah. the problem. And it's a broader problem. Absolutely. And what it means is that the only place that holds people in those circumstances, because there's a lot of harm that can be done in the society if somebody is slipping through those gaps and has significant drug issues, what significant issues of trauma that they're coping with using drugs, for example. And for that person to be left to their own devices Mm. might mean that they are driving when they're intoxicated, for example, or they are not able to function in society in the ways that you would want people to be able to have those privileges. And it means that the place that they end up is incarcerated. And my family member is incarcerated at the moment. And that shouldn't be an option for someone who's struggling with drug use. No. And that also leads to as well with the other part of the criminal justice system, because there are programs in place, drug diversion programs. Yes. And there's only two in Queensland that I've found. Well, there could be more, but I've this only found This is a two. new thing, isn't it? Yes. The first one is Drug and Alcohol Assessment Referral Program, or the DAR, and participants eligible for this must be of adult age. And then the second one is the Illicit Drugs Court Diversion Program, or the CDP, which participants eligible for that are young people, youth as well as adults. And from the research I've found with that, which is a contributing factor to the problem within the system is that participants within these programs would see that their offences that they've been charged with, Mm -hmm. they won't appear on their criminal record. 
But part of me looks at that as being, well, that's kind of indicative of a conditional approach. So, hey, if you do these programs, we're not going to give you a criminal record. You'll have a clean record. Yeah. And then you look at the way the programs are run as well. So it's to provide education information in 60 to 90 minute sessions conducted either in person or over the phone. And who does yeah. those? Who provides that information? Um, I think... Do you believe Is it human service workers? Yeah, human service workers yep. and police. No, so people yep. involved within the system. So I think that could be part of I'm not sure, don't quote me on this, could be part of corrective services. Yeah. Like probation and parole. Yeah, and that like type that. of a thing. Yes. So And Brooke was talking about that and she spoke about it kind of in a positive way in the sense that it's taking people out of the courts. Yeah. So deferring them to areas where they could be transitioned into yeah. better supports that actually recognise the needs of people hmm. more productively, I guess yeah, you could say. It's to tap my little justice knowledge, I guess it's kind of part of therapeutic jurisprudence. So it's looking at it from yep. a th- therapeutic point of view. It can go, I guess, part of also restorative Yes. practices as well, yeah. which as a student, I was a bit iffy on restorative practice at first because it can be very confronting. But also in some cases, it is actually a very positive thing because it's really yes. putting it straight in front of someone. I you, have yeah. had some exposure to restorative practices yeah. and it's broader than what we think in relation to the restorative practices can be shaped in different ways for different purposes. And I know that Youth Justice has done restorative practices for a really long time. Mm. I've been part of one of those processes as a supporter Mm. and I actually found it really good. Depending on the person that's facilitating, I think, that can be where harm can be done for sure. Yeah, and like with some of these programs, the information that they provide is amazing too. Like they're providing information about the harmful use of drugs and or alcohol to foster a better understanding of the relationship between substance use and the offences that they have been charged with. So it's not blaming them or the substances that they've taken. It's saying, hey, look, this is your environment. This is what's contributed to what we think has happened. And it sort of creates that space of thinking, reflection, you know, they're thinking reflexively. And it really makes it look at the systems that they've been thrown into as to why. And I do like that support. The only problem that I will always have is a conditional approach to anything. Do this and get this. And I think that's part of that establishment approach. And Brooke was talking about anti-establishment, how she's anti-establishment and how there is a lot of conversations that have been had, I don't think they're new, I think they've been around for a long time, about being abolitionist. And so not looking at the authorities of the policing of things as the way to go. I think this drug diversion program has potential for us to have more conversations in relation to what could be and what the possibilities are. And for that to happen, I think those conversations are important in that space. There have been discussions or there's been an abolitionist approach that's being recognised in the AOD space. I know that Debbie Kilroy has been speaking for a long time about abolitionist approaches for women in prisons. And I really see that there's something in this 
mm. in relation to the ways that we don't want to criminalise young people and we don't want to criminalise people who use drugs. Mm. We want to recognise it for the different purposes and reasons that people are using drugs and alcohol. And that abolitionist approach really fits well with that harm reduction. Yeah, it does. And that's what I like about it. And it's well. anti-establishment. Yeah, I'm all for challenging the system, being anti-establishment. Let's just go challenge those systems, break down that system. But doing it in it. a way that people are yeah. still protected. I know yeah. some of the conversations that I've had in relation to abolitionist approaches is that, yeah, but what about the harm if we're coming from a trauma-informed space, mm. what happens in relation to not exposing people unnecessarily to more trauma? Yeah. Like that's something I think we need to have more discussions about. Yeah. How do we do abolitionist work where we're not relying on police to control but we're actually providing supports and being with people in ways that they don't feel like they have to be doing things that are oppositional because yeah. we're not being oppositional to them. No. It kind of makes sense that yeah. if, if you're going back to your example mm. of the stealing of the bread crate and using it to go down the hill, like there's an element of danger in what was being done. Yeah. However, yeah. it was kind of like... If you were to become punitive in that mm. example, then that would have meant that that person didn't come in and do art or would never use that yeah. service again because they would have felt criminalised. Yeah. We just sort of created a safe space, safe environment and a comfortable environment and then yeah. we got a laugh out of it as well. He laughed at it. It was mm. great. And I know that that's kind of... I don't want to minimise the complexity of yeah. these kinds of ideas and the ways that we could explore them. Mm. You know, I think Brooke and the intentional work that Brooke does really does look at that abolitionist space because yeah. of some of the things that have happened in relation to the festivals. And yeah. one of the things that she was talking about is where when police come around, people take all their drugs and then they yeah, overdose. That and was... that example is devastating yeah because you know they're coming from that space of they're seeing a uniform coming at them in that punitive yeah. way and they're frightened they're scared they're worried that they're absolutely terrified that they're going to get in trouble so they make a snap decision which can have devastating consequences and that's not their fault it's the way that fear works it's like that fight flight or freeze response that you get and in that instance they've got the flight and freeze so they're frozen then they go into flight mode and that's what they're, they're yeah. choosing. That. And if I was to look at that from a Foucauldian perspective, I would mm. say that the symbolism of an authority figure, yeah. such as a police officer and the surveillance of mm. that, that police officer could have been the nicest person in the world. But that image of the uniform mm. and the symbolism that that has of authority and discipline yeah. and I'm going to get in trouble so I have to do this, like... Those assumptions that are there because of those dominant discourses yeah. of authority, criminalisation, discipline. So yeah. we could do things way differently than that. We could. And I think as a whole, our system, the, the, the criminal justice system needs a massive overhaul. Yeah, I think the way society um, perceives drugs and alcohol needs an overhaul. Mm -hmm. Rather than stigmatising it, destigmatise it, shift perspectives, 
challenge biases as well as the unconscious biases as well as challenge ourselves to reframe and how we cast a lens on things so we can get a deeper understanding of that. And I think that's where it starts because that's a big deal and I'm not naive enough to say that, oh, yes, we need to overhaul the system and I've Mm. got a way of doing that because I absolutely don't. But it does start with us and changing the assumptions that we do as practitioners educating people in authority in relation to how that can be problematic Mm. and I think that's something that Brooke certainly has a relationship with the police to be able to educate them in that space and I know policing has a place in the society that we live in but if we lived in a different society would it and I think a lot of people in America would kind of say particularly around Black Lives Matter, you'd say maybe it wouldn't. It would be a very different world if we didn't have that. And it's really interesting how you see the differences on that global scale with, like, Australia in comparison to the United States. And I really liked, just on that tangent, how Brooke made comparisons between Canada Australia and how Canada handles the drugs and alcohol space and what they've got in practice over there was just so fascinating. He's like, I'm going to go move to Canada. One, because it's a lot colder there and I'm not dealing with the heat anymore. And two, it just seems like the state over there just seems so different, more, and it's... Progressive and in, a, more, in a social justice kind of way. Yeah, so they've enabled choice, they're enabling self-determination, they're fully aware of the harms and the risks. And that's what Brooke was saying, yeah. like... If you legalise drugs, it means that you can put parameters around it for the ways that we can make it as safe as possible. And it creates that space where there's education, but it's also helping to push forward informed decision making, which is so important. Like we talk, there's a lot of things discussed around informed consent. There's the opposite side, informed decision making, because... We, as human beings, we make a lot of decisions. If we can make a decision that's well-informed based on education and things that we've been given, it's really empowering because we have a right to know Mm -hmm. what we're putting into our bodies, what we're ingesting. Mm -hmm. Like, we look at, okay, Brooke's example about caffeine against cocaine. That is so interesting. It is really interesting. one stigmatised the other one's not stigmatised. I actually do a kind of a little activity Mm. that I do in my lectures when we're talking about these sorts of subjects, like talking about drug and alcohol in relation to the ways that we might support people within practice. And it's where I get little pieces of paper and I put the name of a drug on that piece of paper and I cut all the pieces of paper up and there's particular drugs that I choose and it's alcohol, marijuana, methamphetamines and Valium. So they're the four drugs and what I do is I give each person in the lecture a drug Okay, I give them a piece of paper with the name of a drug. I mean, on that'd it. be a fun lecture. <laughs> <laughs> and what they do, and they don't show their drug to anybody else, they just hold it to themselves. And then I ask them to move on to mm. a continuum of from their own assumptions 
how bad or not so bad or good yeah. that drug is. Yeah. And so people are, are standing along this continuum and they've got their particular drug. And then I ask them, okay, who would like to share what drug you've got and why did you position yourself there? And it was really interesting yeah. to hear the different conversations in relation to most people put methamphetamine at the more bad, dangerous yeah. end because that's the assumption we have yeah. from what society says mm. about methamphetamines. Mm. But alcohol could be in every different gen of that. Like for mm. some people, because of their experiences mm. with alcohol or with family members who have struggled with alcohol yeah. use, then they might be at the really sort of pointy end or they could be down the other end because that has never been a problem for them. Valium was an interesting one. That would be so interesting because I'll look at it, Valium as an antidepressant. I've had Valium before. I call yep. it the happy pill because yep. you literally go off to a happy, wonderful land where nothing can touch you. But then you've also, when you look at it, compare Valium against marijuana or say stuff like LSD, yep. you know, the psychedelics, they do the same thing roughly. Like I'm not a medical professional, so don't mm. quote me on that. And everybody's different too with how Valium is going. But there is not much of a difference. Just Valium no. you can get referred on to and prescribed. Marijuana, you have to go get a... You can grow it, get a dealer for it. Yeah. And then you've got your psychedelics. Yep. And it's their marijuana and psychedelics are criminalised. That's right. But Valium isn't. Yeah. And one of the students, one of their explanations for why they saw it as not so bad was because they use it when they go on aeroplanes because they get really yeah. stressed when they go on an aeroplane. Yeah. And so that's something that has worked for them yeah. to not feel anxious when they're on an aeroplane and that's so really interesting yeah. marijuana I think that has changed over time yeah. because of the legalization and so it was more socially accepted yeah. that people using marijuana because of the shift and when I yeah. had done this prior to the legalization of marijuana in mm -hmm. many places that's when people would have been more up the pointy yeah. end in relation to that so it's yeah. interesting that policy can actually change people's perceptions. Yeah, of that. and it shows the power of language as well and yep. the power bureaucrats have too, because they're the ones making these policy decisions. Yeah, but the power of advocacy it can rise with us. To... And I think it is so important that we as people, we can help inform policy, we can help inform the changes to be made through via policy recommendations like organizations NGOs can have so much power to help inform recommendations yeah. for policy and I think in the AOD space from what Brooke was saying there's a lot of work that goes into that yeah however I, I know Brooke's really passionate about yeah. her work and she did speak about having to have two jobs a lot of the time yeah. or some of the work that she did was not paid work and sometimes she didn't have funding and that funding wasn't available but because of her passion she did it so I imagine there's a lot of invisible work that's yeah. done outside of people's paid work mm. to be able to do those things and I think that should change as yeah. well. Uh, I agree with that and it needs to be so much change. Yeah oh my god 
what a conversation. <laughs> there's a few things. We're going to have to start to wrap up, but yep. there's a few things. One of the things I wanted to talk about is that we've talked about a range of different discourses mm-hmm. in relation to drugs in our whole conversation so yep. far. Like there was the criminalisation yep. conversation that we talked about Criminalisation is a narrative. It is a discourse. It is the dominant narrative in relation to drug and alcohol use in our society. Probably more towards drugs than towards alcohol because Mm -hmm. of the socialisation of alcohol, particularly in Australia. Um, The trauma and coping narrative. So the ways that people use drugs and alcohol to cope with experience of domestic and family violence, gendered violence in relation to sexual assault, other forms of violence that have happened, drug and alcohol use to cope with the trauma of war. So that is something when we're looking at it from a way to cope, it can be something that destigmatizes it from people, particularly yeah. women, who are going through court yeah. and trying to get mm. justice in relation to sexual assault, for example. Yeah. Speaking as a survivor, that was when my drinking problems mm. did start. I used alcohol as a way to just get through it. Oh, dear, I'm so sorry. That's all right. I recently went through two years of very strong therapy to help process a lot of things because I did have a a violent relationship but it was not so much physical it was more very emotional there was sexual violence involved and the dreaded coercive control when you're looking at sexual assault coercive control can be in there because they can actually coerce consent out of you and you're not actually aware that you're not giving emphatic consent and that is still sexual assault and that's really insightful. Yeah. I imagine a lot of people that are listening wouldn't be aware of that. So I went into drinking as a way of coping. Mm. My very first experience with rape, with sexual assault, that was when I discovered the wonderful world of other substances outside of alcohol. And that was a full coping strategy. And at that time, because I was so young, I didn't want to get external help. I didn't want to go and get support from doctors or therapists or anything because I was ashamed because I didn't Mm. want to go through all that. I didn't want to rehash it again. And that's that that potential of re-traumatisation because when you're constantly rehashing things, you can also be potentially re-traumatising yourself, which is a stigma unto itself because you've stigmatised your own experience against yourself. So it's an internalised stigma. Yeah, Yeah, internalised stigma, yeah. But more recently... It was through therapy and going out and getting that support, talking about yeah. it, but also going through a court system as well. It was like that was just wow. And has that stopped you from being able to use substances just simply for enjoyment? It almost did. Yeah. And that's being fu- fully transparent. It almost did. It became a point of I don't want to drink to have fun. I want to drink to get rid of things. I want to yeah. take substances to stop feeling the pain that I'm feeling. Last year, I had problems within my personal life, family death, going mm. through all that stuff. And That's then you a just, lot. Yeah, and I'm, I still don't know how I got through it. And yes, I was using a substance to help me get through just every now and then. Mm. And the person that I was getting that from was a very toxic person in my life. And it took a long, big, heavy discussions with 
friends that I know I can trust to help me get out of that hole. And I've also realised that, hey, it's okay to drink when socially and have fun while drinking. It's okay to do things socially and have fun while doing it. But it very nearly stopped me. But the right environment, and if you're feeling safe... Yeah. It's a great thing. Thank you for sharing. That's all right. So the other reason, which you've just mentioned, yeah. is uh, to use substances for social reasons. Yes. And so there's a narrative around mm. that. And that's the one that's kind of criticised mostly yeah. because it's like if it's for fun or if it's for yeah. pleasure and things like that, it's like, oh, well, yeah, you you shouldn't be doing that for fun or yeah, for pleasure. And, and I, I think because it is criminalised, I assume a lot of parents panic about those things or have really strong views on abstinence in relation to particular kinds of substances. Yeah, and you do Mm. see it too as well with alcohol as well. Like I can remember back in the 90s to 2000s, that's showing my age, the binge drinking culture was massive and you had underage kids going off drinking their cowboys and vodka cruises whatever I can't drink red vodka cruises now because it reminds me of the time I almost died Um, (laughs) a lot of red vodka cruises do not sit well in my stomach but binge drinking was was the big thing that's still part of our culture but I am noticing a big shift in that culture the drinking culture is is shifting which I find that so fascinating as well I will never ever drink lemon ruskies again (laughs) when I would drink I would throw up and that was a terrible thing to throw up because it just burnt my esophagus all the way through. So, yeah, I lived and learned. My 35th (laughs) birthday was the last time I let myself completely go loose and that was so much fun. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, the hangover wasn't fun, but it was fun. We need to start to wrap up now. So I wanted to kind of finish off in relation to, I think we've covered most of what we were going to talk about. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to talk about? Because I think you touched on burnout and that's within the peer space. So I've noticed within the peer space, um, there's supports there for, say, for example, within mental health. But I think Brooke brought up there wasn't as much support within the AOD space with workers in the peer thing. And then I believe she touched on how organisations, they could be at the back of some of the the burnout or the trauma that a worker is dealing with. And now if you're sending a worker out to support someone, that person can feel that, will get that energy and it will be reflected back. That's not a situation anybody should be sitting in. Well, talking about the energy of the person that is the practitioner. Yeah, and so when you've got a practitioner that's in a negative space and they're supporting someone, they're going to feel that energy. And then when you bring it up with the organisation and then the organisation goes hey, well, here's something you can go do, but it costs money, but they're not willing to provide that support themselves. It becomes individual responsibility versus organisational accountability. And in those situations, I think peer supports are so important because you can get so much from your peers. But if the organisations that you're working with aren't providing that, it creates a really uncomfortable sort of environment to be in I think I would go and work with Brooks organization within a heartbeat yeah, because you yeah. can feel 
there's that peer support space right in there. And I think that's something as emerging practitioners we need to look at as broadening. And not just the peer space, being able to be fully held and supported by your organisation. I think we've talked about self-care quite a bit in the previous episode, but sort of relating it to this space is really important in relation to the extra systemic pressure that would be put on staff, particularly because there are a lot of lived and living experience staff. And I thought that was really interesting. And Brooke talking about the value of peer work, but the ways that peer workers have to be really courageous in their practice and are exposed in ways that can be tricky because of the criminalisation. Yeah, it's so important to have that in the backs of our minds as we're working with each other and having that thing. I think that's where, say, debriefs, work organisational debriefs, or even just debriefing with your co-workers, your friends, and just right. sitting down and just talking about your work day and then having little things that you can do. Like for me, I'll sit down and listen to ASMR on through YouTube because that helps calm me right down. Reading a book, listening to music, going for a walk, writing things down in a journal, just getting it out there, anything that's going to make you feel relaxed and comfortable and just being like, hey, my cup is overflowing. I need to take a step back. I need to have some time off for a bit. That's right. So that being available to people. And coming back to that peer work, like there's a difference between peer-to-peer support in relation to us as practitioners and peer work where lived and living experience workers are supporting people who are coming for support and resources in the AOD space. And peer workers, like that's the terminology that's being used for lived and living experience practitioners, not just in the AOD space, Mm. but Brooke was saying there's lots of different ways that lived and living experience work is done uh, across the AOD space, across the mental health sector, in trauma work, people who are carers for people with um, mental health challenges. So that lived and living experience, if you are a practitioner that has lived and living experience, or if you're a person who has lived and living experience that is supporting other people but you can't get a degree yeah. because of the capacity yeah. limitations that you have, yeah. then it's so good that there's spaces yeah. for that work to be able to be done. And it means that there needs to be those supports available for opportunities to have a dialogue about the struggles. Yeah, and I think that is so important, just having yeah. that dialogue afforded. Criti- the opportunities to be able to critically reflect on your experience. Yeah. Not being exposed to authoritarian things yeah. because you might be targeted because yeah. of your living experience yeah. of drug use. Not being judged by your peers yeah. who may not be using substances Mm-mm. but working in that space. I think it's really valuable that we have those discussions and have those conversations. Yeah, 100%. Mm. Fully agree with that. And also the recognition that there's a lot of pressure on lived and living experience Mm. um, workers to talk about their experience. What what I'm trying to get at is that as a lived and living experience Mm. worker, you would talk about your lived experience. Oh, yeah. But to be able to present, Mm. what happens is you get other people 
that are talking about their yeah. experiences to you. And so that's a lot of an emotional load oh, yeah. for a lived and living experience work. Not to say that they are, I, I don't want to uh, infantilize or mm. fragilize or whatever <laughs> the term is, a lived and living experience yeah. worker because they're there for a reason. But also as practitioners, we're not exposed to listening to other people's stories unless it's in a therapeutic space, yeah. you know, when someone's presented and then they've got all these people coming up and saying, oh, that was similar to my experience and then telling yeah. them their story and another person and another person, then it means that we as peer supporters of our workers yeah. need to be mindful that that's a, a, a big emotional load yeah. and that person might need some extra support um, because of that. You know, I think that's important. It is. It's so, it is so important. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was firstly Brooke's creative pa- practice and, and passion. She talked about the program Con- Conscious Nest. Yeah. And the program High Ground, which she has developed from scratch. They're her baby. And recognising that these have come in relation to gaps in the system. Yeah. And the ways Mm. that uh, Brooke has has recognised those gaps as a lived experience practitioner. Brooke's living her purpose as a social work. Her passion is there, but also recognising that she needs to be paid well <laughs> you yes. know, to do the work. Oh, 100%. She needs that funding. She deserves all of the you know? funding. And so do other people that are doing the work. But because harm reduction is not recognised in the same ways yeah. as abstinence approaches are, then it's really important that and medicalised approaches as well. So there needs to be some levelling of where the funding can go to and we need to legitimise these practices in policy for that to happen. And I think too with policy it's starting to shift into that balanced approach, getting that whole of government on board to start start looking at it. it's little baby steps at the moment like the current national drug strategy brooke mentioned is more harm minimization yeah as opposed to harm reduction and i think pushing things into harm reduction goes a long way yeah. to start bridging those little gaps and this isn't new no this is, but it's getting momentum and i think that's a yeah. great thing now the next thing is brooke's critical analysis around yeah the work that she does and herself, like in relation to the ways that she has a bit of internalised stigma sometimes when she talks about her own experience. And that comes from the conditioning of society and how she's got to work on that. And so she needs to critically reflect so that that's not affecting her. So my thing that I wanted to sort of leave us with is a question that we can ask to our listeners in relation to what part we all can play mm. in destigmatizing and decriminalizing drug and alcohol use. Oh, that's a good question. It's a big question. It's a big one. That's a massive, massive one. Like for me, I would be challenging myself, my biases, my unconscious biases. Yeah. The ones that we don't think we have, but we do. The ones that kind of, oh, we're going to do. No. How we look and perceive drugs and alcohol and go start breaking it down. Break down the drugs that you know of yeah. and how you perceive them yes. in comparison to, say, substances that we use daily. Like, that for hierarchy. example, the drinking of 
consistent coffee. And as students, we probably can all relate to our caffeine addiction. Mine's chai lattes. Oh, that's yeah. fair. <laughs> Mine's coffee. I got a nice coffee sitting down the floor over there. And then looking at prescribed medications and how mm. we perceive them and mm. going down and really looking at it and just centering ourselves and positioning ourselves within the cultural spectrum of alcohol yep. and drugs in comparison. But yeah. Yeah. Interesting, hey. Mm. So critical reflection on our own assumptions, particularly as practitioners working alongside peers in the AOD space or any space because we're going to be exposed to people that are experiencing these kinds of struggles that have come from their coping, their trauma, their not having the education that they needed when they were socialising and those sorts of things. Some of the points that I made, but I know these are not extensive, building a critical analysis of the reasons why people are using drugs, recognising that they're not using them because they're bad people. You know, Brooks um, logo, nice people take drugs. I think that's really great. Educating ourselves on drug use so we are not overly engaging in unnecessary hypervigilance and adopting punitive risk management strategy in our practice or in our lives and adopting an abolitionist approach to the policing of drug use to avoid unnecessary systemic harm and deaths of young people. Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up, Sia? It's been a fantastic conversation. It has been a very fantastic conversation. It's got me very contemplative. I'm probably going to be sit back and just thinking about this for a while and then probably have a conversation with some, some friends over some drinks later tonight. Because <laughs> Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So good. Well... Thank you so much, Sia, for joining me no on worries. this conversation and all the best with what comes next oh, after your last 30 hours of placement. It's going to be so fun. I'm excited. <laughs> Take care and thank you, listeners. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this critical conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. And if you would like to keep up with us outside of the podcast, feel free to follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Critical Conversations, the number four, SW, all in one word. We look forward to you joining us next week.